we've already touched in our prayers on the fact that for some, it's a day to demonstrate love and appreciation. And for some, it's a day to receive it. And for some, of course, it's both. But we have to remember as well that Mothering Sunday can be a difficult day for many. Some of us can give thanks to God for the blessing of family. Others may not be able to. There'll be those here today who have lost their mothers. And I've lost mine. We may have lost them to old age or prematurely to illness or cruelly to dementia. There will be those who have lost children, born or unborn. There will be mothers, fathers and children who have lost or become estranged from one another. There may be those who feel their mothers did not treat them well. There will be those who would love to have had children but never been able to. So just like Christmas, Mothering Sunday can awaken or reawaken the pain of loss, of separation and grief. Now the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus suffered temptation just as we do. Jesus wants to draw close to us and comfort us in our pain. I've got to move these on. God's heart is to bring healing and salvation to a world that is broken. He longs that each one of us, wherever we are on our journey of life, whether we've been through painful times, are able to discover his comfort and his healing. Because it's only as we receive comfort and healing from God, the sense that he is alongside us, that we can then go out and play our part in reaching out to others who are themselves in pain. It's only then, as we've received from God himself, that we can share with others the love that we have received. Whatever our circumstances today, however we're feeling, I'd like us to just think for a little while about our God-given relationships and our opportunities both in our own families and in the church family and beyond. I'm thinking first about our own families. In the secular world, Mothering Sunday has metamorphosed into Mother's Day. Cards, flowers, chocolates, gifts, meals out, and they're all genuine tokens of appreciation. But behind the promotion of Mother's and later on Father's Day, the spirit of commercialism is hard at work, bringing in the pounds and promoting the myth that Britain is a nation of happy, smiling, prosperous families. But you know, one special day a year is no substitute for strong, healthy, respectful, loving, caring family relationships all the year round. Now, all families have their ups and downs. We've had plenty. But many in this congregation also know something of the trauma when relationships in families are in crisis. It is always painful 
when adult relationships break down. But often it's the children, the children who bear the greatest cost, the children who don't understand what is happening, but know that they have to now divide their lives between two different parents who reside in different homes. And if this happens to us or as adults or, or happens to others in our families that we are close to, we can often feel that God has forsaken us or we've failed him. And sometimes then our response is to shut God out and somehow keep our heads down and try to soldier on. But these, these painful times in family life are the very times that God wants to come and walk beside us and help us to work through the pain and the difficulty. When people move forwards and start building trusting relationships in new blended families, it requires a lot of give and take, a lot of compromise, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of understanding if adults and children are going to flourish and find healing together. We sang the song, didn't we, that we are all different in God's family. Our families are all different. There's so many different patterns of family life. And we're not here to criticise or judge one another, but to kindly, in the words of a Wesley hymn, to kindly help each other on as we navigate some of the trials of life. Now, family life in biblical times was structured around the extended family, not the nuclear family. It wasn't until the 60s and the 70s that the nuclear family became the norm in this country. And then in a time of economic prosperity and rising wages, it was possible for young parents to afford their own homes. They didn't have to live with parents any longer. Better health care meant that older people were able to be independent for decades after their own children were grown up. I think we're heading into a different time now. We're, heading in, we're in an age of greater austerity, and many of us are seeing those trends reversed. Um, and in our own family, we're seeing a change. We, our two daughters have always been fiercely independent because, understandably, they have wanted to discover their own identity apart from their parents. And it's important, isn't it, as parents, that as our children grow up, we let them go. We let them find their way in the world. We let them make mistakes, but are always there to welcome them home. And now we're entering a new phase because we're finding that despite being financially independent, there's a real sense with both our daughters that they want mum and dad in their lives. They want mum and dad to offer friendship and support, particularly as they work out what it means as career women, they're both women with careers, but what it means for them to bring up their own children in an increasingly complex world. And it's a wonderful opportunity, isn't it, in families to build relationships across the generations but to do so, we need godly wisdom as we navigate life together 
respect one another, support one another, influence one another for good, whilst allowing one another freedom and independence. As parents and grandparent figures, we have a real role in nurturing, encouraging, equipping our children, whatever age they are, for the future. It's a privilege that God has given to us. Turning now to our first read, part of the reading, in the second letter of Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and he gives uh, him some insight, uh, not just to Timothy, but to all who read this letter, uh, some insight into how we can ground our children in their faith. And he writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived living faith. We talk about having a living faith, don't we? That faith, faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Three generations of faith. If you read Acts chapter 16, it tells us that Eunice, despite her Greek name, which means she conquers. Ladies, isn't that a great name? thought I might change my name to Eunice. She conquers. She was a Jewish woman married to a Greek man. And Lois was either her mother or her mother-in-law. And grandmother Lois, who is pictured here, helped to raise Timothy, which might suggest that Timothy's father had died or simply that the whole family just lived together as extended family. It is possible that Timothy's dad had died um, because uh, when he was young, because Paul speaks, doesn't he, of the fatherly role that he had with Timothy. And he often refers to Timothy as my true son in the faith. And later on in the letter, Paul mentions to Timothy those from whom you have learned, referring to Eunice and to Lois. The mother and the grandmother who taught Timothy the Jewish scriptures as a child. And then when they, along with Timothy, received Paul's teaching about Jesus and they embraced the Christian faith, they continued to nurture this young man in the things of Christ. Lois and Eunice are powerful examples of the influence a mother or grandmother can have on a young person's life when faith and trust in God is central to their own. In a day when women were rarely mentioned by name, Paul celebrated their impact in preparing the young man who was later going to join Paul in his ministry and who eventually became the pastor, the leader of the church in Ephesus. But bringing up children in the Christian faith is about much more than making sure they hear stories from the teaching of the Bible or bringing them to church. As Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, we need to be living letters, real life examples of Christian teaching, because otherwise our words will carry little weight as our children grow older. I'll tell you a story of four clergymen well, clergy, clergy, not clergymen, clergy, who were standing having an animated discussion about, wait for it, which translation of the Bible was their preferred version. I prefer the King James Version of Scripture, said the first, for its eloquent use of the English language. 
The second reckoned that no Bible could match the New American Standard for its faithfulness to the original Greek and Hebrew text. That may well be, said the third, but I prefer the New International Version for its contemporary language and easy readability. There was a thoughtful period of silence whilst the three looked at the fourth member of the group who finally said, I like my mother's translation best. It was with some surprise that the others said, we didn't know that your mother had translated the Bible. Yes, she did, he replied. She translated it into her daily life, and it was through her translation that I came to know God for myself. Our actions and our disposition speak far more resonantly to our children than our beliefs and our doctrines. I have it on good authority that our children think we're improving. The importance of our Christian character matching the words that we speak is as important in the family of God as it is in our own families. To be authentic Christians, we need Jesus himself to be at the centre of our lives throughout the week. We need to come frequently to the foot of the cross and submit our will, our ideas, our opinions and our ambitions to Jesus. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to search us out, to shine his spotlight on our wrong attitudes and behaviours and change us day by day so that we ourselves may translate the truths of the Bible into our daily lives authentically. And we also need to seek God's wisdom about how we can make the church accessible to everyone, including our children and young people, so that they have a real sense that they are not happening somewhere in a corner, somewhere down the road, but that they are valued and central to the family of God. Our short reading of the familiar passage from Mark's Gospel tells how parents, predominantly mothers I imagine, had sensed that Jesus was no ordinary man and they had come in significant numbers. If you read the Amplified Bible, it says they kept on coming and they kept on bringing young children to him just so that he would touch them. But in a culture in which women and children had no status at all, the disciples were having none of it. Can't you just imagine Peter or James and John looking at one another as if to say, we have a situation and they were chasing, virtually chasing the mothers and the children away so that Jesus could be left alone to talk with the men about things that were important without the distraction of children. This is the only place I can find where Jesus is described as indignant. Indignant, defined in the dictionary, is a feeling characterized by or expressing strong displeasure at something considered unjust, offensive, insulting. Jesus was offended by the way children had been treated. To Jesus, turning children away was unjust. And didn't he show it? He brought the disciples up short and sharp. Don't you hinder those children. Bring them to me. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
And while we're on the subject of the kingdom of God, you won't even get close unless you receive as a little child. And then almost as an act of defiance, he gathered these children up in his arms in a society where children had no status. Jesus spoke and acted both counterculturally and prophetically. Jesus was 100% relational. And one of our problems in churches today is that we're so preoccupied with running the organization that we don't leave ourselves enough time to build meaningful, Christ-centered, kingdom-focused relationships. Well, some of you do, I know. Some of you are brilliant at building relationships with ones and twos, people who come in. But the more you get involved in running an organization, the more your time for relationships is squeezed. And that can't be God's heart. We talk about being a multi-generational church. And yes, each Sunday we have people in our services from right across the age spectrum. And yes, many of us cultivate personal relationships and friendships with others from a different generation. But does that make us a truly cross-generational church? I wonder, in case you hadn't noticed, some of us who have been here a while are getting older. Dave's nodding, he's looking at me, I can tell. If this church is going to grow and reproduce and reach out to where the people are, it needs to be a place where it's the norm for older people to nurture and encourage those who are younger, to give them the space to explore and develop ministry for themselves. The church will not flourish if it is just run by those who are set in their ways. It needs to be a place where you're willing to let people do things differently and make mistakes without being judged. The grandparent figures need to support the parent figures as they make sense of how to take the church forwards for the next generation. Do you want to be in a church where groups are segregated by age, gender or interest? I don't. I so want and need to be energized by younger people who have fresh ideas who can help keep me in touch with how younger generations think and perceive the world. And hopefully, just occasionally, I might be able to impart a little wisdom that comes from a lifetime of learning from my mistakes. I want to be part of a church where children are clearly visible and where children and young people have a voice. I want to be part of a church where all are welcomed and everyone finds true and meaningful friendships and where no one feels alone. If we obey the biblical injunction to welcome the stranger, the church must be a place that is open to all, where all are welcomed and all find a place of safety and belonging. Children, young people, young adults, the middle-aged, the newly retired, the elderly, those with disabilities, those with mental health issues, people from diverse cultures, asylum seekers, the homeless, those who have been broken should all be able to find their place within the family of God. Yet sadly, too often, people who are a bit different find church generally a difficult place and often don't feel they quite belong. This should not be. And we must examine ourselves continually, asking how well we are doing 
Jesus continually reached out to and engaged with those who were marginalized, who had no status in society, lepers, beggars, the maimed, tax collectors, prostitutes, women and children. Psalm 68 reminds us of God's heart. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. And so as we leave here today, many of us will rightly enjoy time with our families. But let us ever hold fast to the call upon our lives to put Jesus at the centre of all that we do, to seek to be his hands and feet, so that we truly welcome the stranger and reach out to those who need his love and touch upon their lives, even if it means we have to live life and do life differently. Let's be quiet for a moment. just in the quietness give thanks to God for the things you can give thanks for and in the quietness open your heart and mind to God if he wants you to do something differently in your life then open up your heart and will to him in a moment we're going to stand and sing our response.